Thank you for being here and welcome. I want to extend greetings and welcome to all those who are uh, quite literally sitting on top of me right now on the third floor, and to all of those of you who are joining online digitally somehow over the worldwide etherweb, welcome. My name's Eric Barton, and uh, I get to be one of the pastors down here at the downtown campus, and it sort of occurred to me during the lighting of the Advent candle that I now have a new deacon duty for Dash Cannell, and it's going to be to sit in this little stool right here so that if and when I go off track, Dash can just reach out and give me the, the squeeze, and I'll know, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and that'll be an everyday kind of a thing, Dash, so welcome to it. Hey, I'm so thankful to, get to be with you in this time of doing church in the midst of the COVID, and uh, that you're here and you're in person, and for those of you who are not, I'm so thankful that we're getting to at least have this sort of virtual connection. We do want to welcome you and ask that you continue to prepare your hearts for worship, even as we study God's Word together. As you've already seen upstairs, we've lit the preparation candle, this second Sunday of the Advent calendar, where all over the world, the church universal, the people, the us-ness of the children of Christmas, if you will, are celebrating the coming of King Jesus and, and also contemplating the preparations that we'll make. And so I want to talk this morning specifically about preparations. I remember as a kid, as I would drive home from college to my hometown in my 1977 Datsun 310GX that had three working gears, no headliner, no AC, no heater, no radio. And the ladies loved it. But I would drive home, and my mom would tell me this, that my dad would get sort of nervous as he waited for me to pull up, and he would, he would just kind of fidget around the house. He would, he would check the sprinklers. He would go and like make sure the door wasn't locked for the fifth time. He would go outside and just, I mean, this was in a kinder, gentler age. He would just smoke like without being able to control. He, just, he would just fidget. And he was this expectancy that sort of dictated and drove and determined all of his behavior. And his anticipation would sort of move him to behave in a different way. And I used to look at that, and I'd see him so nervous for me to get home, and I'd be like, poor silly dad. What a, what a, what a parent. I'm never going to do that. <laughs> Until my own kids started leaving the house and driving, and I found myself wearing out the carpet in front of our dining room window, pacing back and forth, wondering, like I was in a duck shooting gallery, where they were. And now to make it even worse, we have what in my family we call the creepy tracker, which is I can find your phone. And I know that, oh my gosh, it's been on Broadway for five minutes. Is he stalled? Is he stuck? Did he have a wreck? Is he dead? And, and so I make preparations. I want when they come home from a vacation, whenever I want them to see that I have been waiting for them and that the house is clean. They don't care, but I want them to see all these preparations because that anticipation actually changes my behavior. So what about Christmas as we continue to walk through this Advent season? What is the preparation that we're supposed to be all about? I'm reminded of that little tiny village called Bethlehem, Beit Lachem in Hebrew, the house of bread. That's just barely to the south of Jerusalem. I'm reminded this Christmas season that Bethlehem was ill-prepared, tragically. I mean, just imagine Mary and Joseph come into town and Bethlehem is not ready. They are not 
prepared. They should have been. They were told just a few centuries earlier in the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, they're told this. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans, there's nothing significant about you. There's nothing special about you. It's not because of who you are, what you do, what you can possibly do. Oh, Bethlehem, you're kind of a nobody. And into that context, you're too small to be numbered among the clans of Judah. From you, I'm going to see if I can get through this without losing my mind, because this is such an unbelievable text. From you shall come forth for me, God says, one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, from yam olam, from everlastingness in the past. He has been coming forth, and he will come into your context. See, Bethlehem, if you will allow it, stopped walking by the window waiting for the Messiah. It sort of became just a, uh, a hope or a wish or a maybe, And so their behavior, of course, was not also changed. They weren't prepared. And so I wonder about us. Because of first advent, we get to live on this side of first advent. Are we prepared for second advent? How can we remain in a a posture of preparation? Let me say at the outset, remaining in a posture of preparation will not happen as an act of your will. Like, yeah, I'm just going to try harder to be better. Good luck with that. Because by the time you get cut off on Broadway on the way home or on the way to lunch, you will have forgotten all about your posture of preparation. And me too. It'll only happen if you are persistently, consistently reminded of the actual meaning of Christmas. The simple meaning of Christmas is that the creator king became a human being. All the other stuff that's going on, all the lights and the cartoons and the music and the food and the mold, spice ciders and all those things, the creator king of the cosmos became a human being. And so our big idea for this morning as we study and explore this idea of preparation, our big idea goes like this. Jesus is who the Bible says he is and nothing else. Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. Now, for these next three weeks, we're going to look at the three different birth narratives of Jesus in our gospel accounts. The gospel of Matthew and uh, Luke and John. Mark does not cover that. And each one of these birth narratives are trying to convey and communicate a different uh, message or a meaning. The gospel of Matthew is all about how Jesus is the rightful son of David, the king of Israel. The Gospel of Mark is about how Jesus is the suffering servant. The Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is the Lord Sabaoth. He's the commander of the host of the armies of the kingdom of heaven. The Gospel of John, Jesus is God. So those three birth narratives we're going to look at today is Matthew chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now, I would love to spend more time on the first 17 verses, but just because of what time of day it is, we're going to not cover all those. I'm going to read all the way through verses 18 to 25, and then we'll unpack it very briefly, and I'll try to apply it. So Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that is, Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, Matthew has to explain, God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did it as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. So I want to set the stage for what's going on here. We'll unpack this. This is 2,000 years ago. This is the ancient Near East. This is the the Roman province of Palestine. And the way that wedding custom worked back then is that a man and a woman, or usually a a guy in his 20s, more than likely, would be betrothed to a teenage girl. Save your oohs and icks for later. A guy in his 20s probably is betrothed to a girl who's in her teens. And from that moment, they are considered husband and wife, but they live separately. They are not to have relations for at least a year while the groom prepares a place for his bride. And then after a year or so, he will go and get her. And if she is found to be pure and she's kept herself uh, in righteousness, then he will bring her back to his home. Now, that's a very important wedding custom that we have to understand as Matthew tries to explain this is who Jesus is. And his account of all this is really sort of the unpacking, the expansion, the elaboration of what he's already said in verse 16. He's already given the entire genealogy of Jesus, and he's given 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations to show that, by the way, that's sort of a little bit of Hebrew code there, that Jesus is the son of David. Because again, Matthew wants you and I to know that Jesus is the rightful Davidic king. He is the king of Israel. And in verse 16 of the genealogy, Matthew says, rather briefly, but very pointedly, he was born by Mary, not born by Joseph. They're both from the tribe of Judah. That's very good. That's very important. That means Jesus is an appropriate Davidic king. They're both from the tribe of Judah, but he's only born by Mary. It's a very strange thing for Matthew to say. And so verses 18 and 25 is the explanation of the genesis. It's not really birth. Genesis is the actual word. It's the the beginning. So really, this is not a story so much about the birth of Jesus as it is about the conception of Jesus, that it is incredible. It is done by God himself. So again, in verse 18, now the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, the Christ, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she's found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. If you're here in this building, you can hear sirens right now. That's sort of what would have been going off in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. <gasps> Rut-row, she's with child. And Joseph's like, uh, I, 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 I didn't, I, no, 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 not me. Mm-mm. According to Deuteronomy 22, what Joseph could and should have done was taken her to the city gates in Jerusalem, presented her publicly to the elders of the city, and had her stoned and killed in execution for her unfaithfulness and her unrighteousness. That's what was required of her acting outside of their betrothal. Verse 19, 
Let's let me finish verse 18. When his mother Mary had become, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. But Joseph didn't know that. And that's a strange excuse to come up with. Well, no, 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 really, it was the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh, sure. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a, your translation might say just, it might say noble, it might say righteous. It's all the same word, dikaiosune. He's a righteous man. He's doing what he's supposed to do and he almost misses Jesus in the process. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he didn't want to take her to the city gate. He didn't want to have her executed, publicly shamed and stoned, execution style. He didn't want to do that to her. He resolved to divorce her quietly. There was still going to be a scandal. It was still going to be a big kerfuffle, but he was going to try to do it in stages over time. It wasn't going to work. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, he's meandering in his musings. How am I going to get out of this? I'm going to lose my family reputation. I might even lose my business. I'm certainly going to lose my bride. How do I get out of this? As he considered these things at that exact moment, behold, an angel of the Lord. You think the angel could have showed up a little bit earlier? No. See, trust this. God's timing is always impeccable. We may not like it. It might not fit on our Google calendars. God's unconcerned. His timing is always impeccable. Listen to what it says, verse 20. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Very important little article there. It doesn't say the angel of the Lord. Because in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is almost always, about 99.9% .9 of the time, a pre-incarnate Christ. But in this context, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, is experiencing the first sensations of incarnation in the womb of Mary. And so an angel of the Lord, we think it's probably Gabriel, Matthew doesn't tell us, appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, you are in the line. You could have and should have been prepared. Notice how God speaks to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That's really interesting. Usually when angels show up, they say, don't be afraid of me, because you know, angels are rather terrifying. When John sees one in the book of Revelation, he face plants, not once, he doesn't learn his lesson, but twice. And the angel goes, dude, seriously, embarrassing, get up. But John face plants. Here, the angel tells Joseph, do not be afraid to marry her. Talk more about that in a moment. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's what she was saying. Okay. Okay, I got it. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. I love Matthew 1.22. Joseph doesn't get to name Jesus. Because in fact, Jesus has already named Joseph. You might remember back in the garden, Adam is given the responsibility, the opportunity, and the privilege to name all the animals. Carl, Ben, Steve, Whip, whatever. Not really, he gave them animal names. Naming something is a symbol and a sign of authority. You might actually know some people who love to give everyone they know little nicknames. 
It's a little subconscious thing that they have always tried to manage and manipulate. They've always tried to have a little bit of control. It's not a horrible thing, but if you're one of those people who likes to give me a nickname, just know I'm going to buck just because of this passage. No, no, you don't get to name Jesus. You don't get to tell him what he's supposed to be and to do for you. He shall be called Jesus, Yeshua. Why? Because in that one name is the source of his person and the purpose of his person. The source of his person, he is from God. His purpose, to bring salvation. And incidentally, that's really, really, really important for all of us to know. When you and I begin to more fully accept and live into our source and our purpose, really then and only then do we begin to have significant meaning, worth, impact, and influence. We have to know our source and our purpose. So it's a great Christmas question. What if this Christmas you could give yourself the gift of taking some time to really ask and answer the question, what is my source? What is my purpose? Jesus is named precisely for his source and his purpose. For he will save his people from their sins. Not from the Romans. Turns out God and Jesus love the Romans. That's interesting. He loves the perceived enemies of the people of God. Just saying. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had, be, had spoken by the prophet. Matthew's going to quote Scripture in a defense of, hey, this is really the truth. This is really absolutely the truth. Uh, he quotes, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew says, this is that. The thing that Isaiah said seven centuries ago, it's happened now in our midst. This is that. In other words, Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Always a good idea. I don't know how frequently an angel of the Lord appears to you, but when he does, you should probably go ahead and do whatever. Clean your room, microwave that burrito. I don't know, but if he says do it, you should probably do it right? Joseph woke from sleep and did as the angel of the Lord, meaning God, had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. They did not have any relations until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, because God had said so. Why? Because Joseph says, I am willing to take her into my home prematurely, it's going to cost me at every level. It's going to cost me reputation. It's going to cost me probably economically. It's going to cost me um, in a familial sense. It's going to cost me in every way. But I am willing to do this because Joseph believed that God was with us. That's the name Emmanuel. Or more grammatically specific, Emmanuel. He is the with us God. God with us. Let me unpack this very, very quickly. Emmanuel, God with us. This is a very strong, a very clear claim to the divinity of Jesus. When it says that he is God with us, what that means is he is God with us. Declaration of his divinity. Who can forgive sin 
only the one against whom the sin is committed. And by the way, all sin ultimately is committed against God. And so he is the only one that can forgive it. That's why Jesus came. That's why the Jews were asking him, by whose authority are you doing these things? By whose authority are you forgiving sin? And Jesus says, my father and I are always about this kind of a thing. And yet, here's what's amazing. It's a shocking thing to us, sort of, but we've probably been in church enough that we've heard things like this, that Jesus claims to be God. But please understand, the disciples of Jesus were monotheistic Yahwists. In other words, they were good little Jewish boys to whom if you said anything, anybody else was God, they would throw rocks at your face until you died. But all of these disciples embraced that this man, this carpenter, this stonemason, whatever, from Nazareth near the Galilee was actually God. And they all believed it and they all gave their lives for it. So Jesus is God with us, but he's also God with us. He's the immediate and the imminent and intimate God. It's the beauty of Psalm 23. For you are with me, says David, in that so familiar psalm. Ultimately, it's true in Christ. He is with us. So many of us, including Christians, live as functional deists. We think there's a God, and then he's sort of just up there in the ether, disinterested or distracted. But that's completely illogical. Christianity is the only religion, the only faith construct that says, no, he is God, and he's actually with us. All throughout the Old Testament, appearances of God were horrifying. People would face plant, but this one comes vulnerably, defenselessly. There's a huge difference between merely experiencing some education about God and him being with us. And then there is that us. Jesus is with us, God with us, those who are his, not all. Who is this us? Those who are prepared. Those who have humbly submitted, who have said, I have no righteousness of my own. I agree and I admit. And those that agree and affirm that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Well, so what? How do we prepare in this Advent season? What do we do to actually get ready? Let me just give you four quick principles, applications, implications how we are to prepare between the Advents. Number one goes like this. Christmas isn't sentimental. Christmas is supernatural. Now, I'm starting with that because I want that to be a jolt to your kidneys, every single one of us. Because I love the Christmas season more than any other time of the year. It literally is, to me, the most wonderful time of the year. And I am a sentimentalitarian or something. But it's good for me and for all of us to be reminded that Christmas isn't sentimental, it is supernatural. Larry King is 87 years old. He's still alive. Mostly animatronic, but he's still alive. He's interviewed virtually every human being that is of any interest whatsoever in the celebrity context. And very frequently, he is still asked, if you could do one interview, one interview of one person ever, who would that interview be? And he doesn't flinch. He doesn't pull a punch. He doesn't hesitate. He says, Jesus. Because I would ask him one question only. Was his mother really a virgin? Now that usually draws chuckles from the people that are asking him that question, but he's dead serious because you see, Larry King is unambiguously Jewish. Christmas holds no meaning for him whatsoever. There's no sentimentality to it for him whatsoever. He really just wants to know that one single question. Is 
Jesus, virgin born, meaning, is he God? Because if he is, that would absolutely change literally everything. There is nothing that that truth would not impact. See, it's not about sentimentality. It is about supernaturality. That's not a word. Write it down anyway. All of us have the the pull from this season to be settlers for something so much less than. I love hot cocoa. I love presents. I even have an affinity for Rudolph. It's true. I even have heat miser here today. I get it. I like the holiday season. But it cannot be about mere tradition and warmth and family memories and any of those things. It is supernatural. The creator king became a human being. So how do we prepare? Three quick things. We must prepare for the world's disdain. Prepare for the world's disdain. Joseph voluntarily suffered all kinds of indignity. The angel said, don't be afraid to marry Mary. Joseph, this is going to cost you something. You know what's really instructive? God doesn't apologize or feel bad about that. Oh man, I'm so sorry. This is going to be awkward for you. It's okay, one day you'll be dead and you'll get over it. No. God says, I'm calling you to this. You're going to lose something. It's going to cost you dearly. Don't be afraid of that. Walk into it voluntarily. I love the way Spurgeon says this. Now remember, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. Whew, that gets me. You'll never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. Listen, we are strangers in a strange land. And for some of us, we have not wanted to let go of the fact that our belief construct has been the default assumption of a culture for a couple hundred years. And really and truly in the last 10 years or so, there's been a seismic shift and our culture has departed from that. That's okay. Prepare accordingly. It's time to ask ourselves, what do we really believe? Matthew, the writer of the gospel that we just studied, only a few years after he wrote those words, finds himself in Egypt being chopped in half by an axe. Now, you don't go to that kind of death unless you sincerely, actually, and fully believe the thing that you are confessing. He was prepared, do you see? Prepare for the world's disdain. Number two, prepare for the Lord's direction. Prepare for the Lord's direction. Jesus isn't who you and I want him to be. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. A man a number, number of years ago at a different church said, hey, enough with all the Bible verses. Just give him Jesus in the manger. I know what you mean. I'm sorry. I cannot. Because the biblical presentation of Advent is creator king becoming a human being, and we cannot diminish that with popcorn and tinsel. We have to talk about the supernatural. Prepare for the Lord's direction. Because he is who the Bible says he is, he must be God, he must be king, therefore he has authority. You and I don't get to name God. His invitation is to name you. The worst thing that Jesus ever says about anybody in any of the gospel accounts is, away from me, I don't know you. In other words, I haven't named you. The offer at Advent is to hear and feel the Lord of Lords name you. 
I wonder what you think your Revelation 19 name might be. Have you ever asked him at Christmas, would you name me all over again? Would you remind me of how you love me and how you name me and how you think of me more accurately than even I do? That's the gift he would love to give you. Prepare for the Lord's direction. And if and when you and I really center in on the fact that he loves us so much that he would step out of glory into our midst and our mess to voluntarily go to the cross innocently for our sin, when you begin to center and dwell on that, I promise you, you will begin to hear from the Lord in new ways that will stir and move your life. So prepare for the Lord's direction. Thirdly, <laughs> prepare for your own depravity. See what we've done there? Prepare for the world's disdain, the Lord's direction, and your own depravity. This is what the angel tells Matthew. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Please hear this if you hear nothing else. Without the incarnation, your greatest hope is who you are. Just let that percolate on your person. Without the incarnation, your greatest hope is who you are. God owes you, God owes me nothing. But by grace, he rescues and redeems sinners. He had a reason for redeeming you. But you aren't it. Oh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, small among Judah. You're too insignificant. But I'm coming to you to place my sendable self in you. You've ever prepared for that level of sin that you actually are? And yet, you're Bethlehem. The Son of God laid in your mess and your muck. Because that's what God does. Prepare for your own depravity. Christmas is not all this other sentimentality. It's recognition of, I don't deserve this. But the Son of God has been laid in my person, in a sense. In my need and my helplessness, God sent his Son. It's because of me, and it's because of you. See, Jesus is who the Bible says he is. That's what Matthew wants to say. All of those hopes, all of those aspirations that we had for Messiah, it's happened and it has come, just not as we expected. And so as we sing this morning, come thou long expected Jesus. Well, he has. And he's coming again. And so may we be in a posture of preparation. I'm going to invite you to pray with me, and perhaps you come in agreement with the things that I say. Perhaps you just need to do some serious business with the Lord yourself, but I'm going to invite you to quiet whatever else is going on in your life and join me in prayer. Father, we do thank you this morning for who you are, for what you have done, what you have revealed to us in this Genesis narrative of the coming of Christ into our context. Father, if there's anyone here this morning on either of these floors or listening at home remotely or online that doesn't know you, that is completely in agreement that there is a God and maybe he's kind of like the force or the energy cloud in the sky or something, but this whole Jesus thing, eh, would you move irresistibly? Would you lift the blinds of disbelief? Would you do for them what you have done for us? Would you give them the gift of faith, that they would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That they would believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. For the rest of us, Father, would you capture our hearts, affections, 
our minds, attention, that we would be in a posture of preparation, not out of will, obligation, or duty, but because as Matt reminds us so often, we are loving lovers. So would you give us the gift of loving your son Jesus all the more, basking in the supernatural wonder of the incarnation of the king of the cosmos. Free us, rescue us from sentimentality. And may this Christmas season be significant for you and to us. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.